Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Val Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research, best-selling author of book, Disrupting Digital Business, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and other media publications. I often now see him on CNBC and Fox Business. And he is, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome to Disrupt TV, Ray Wong. Happy New Year. Awesome. <laughs> so here with my co-host, Bala Afshar. Everyone knows him. He's like number one follow on Twitter for CIOs and CMOs, uh, accomplished author himself. Uh, but more importantly, um, so much for sage wise Twitter advice. Uh, I've been noticing people always say, hey, you know, your co-host, Bala Ashar, he's got these great lists of interesting advice, thoughtful things, and of course, more importantly, a uh, wonderful guy and my co-host. So, but we're not here to talk about us. We're here to talk about what's happening, what's hot for 2019. And we've got a really awesome guest to kick this off. Who do we have today? We thought about kicking off 2019 by inviting one of the smartest technologists that both Ray and I know. We have Stuart, Stu Miniman, Senior Analyst at Wikibon, host of The Cube. I just found out he interviewed 400 people last year. So, you know, one of the, one of the Hall of Fame uh, technology interview uh, experts himself and a General Manager of Customer Operations at SiliconANGLE Media. Stu's background in, is in networking, virtualization, cloud computing, emerging technologies. His focus is on disruptive tech in the cloud. His passion is for innovation and communities, and we're going to learn more about that. He's an awesome follow on Twitter at Stu, S-T-U. And that gives you a hint uh, in terms of how much of a leading edge guy he is. I don't know how you score a Twitter handle. Free letter, free letter. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't get Vala and you got Stu. Welcome Stu, uh, Stuart to, uh, to Disrupt TV. Hey, Vala and Ray, it is great to see you guys. I, I see both of you in the airports at the conferences. Uh, I met both of you on the Twitters first before I met you in person. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I've, I've got an OG Twitter name. Uh, I, I have to bring a little bit something since you guys, you know, uh, you know, obviously have such a great following and uh, really appreciate you letting me come and help kick off 2019. Awesome. Well, this is awesome having you. And, you know, we're here to talk about trends, what's hot, what's disruptive. You've been looking at this, you know, and, and one of the top things that you've been talking a lot about is this motion and notion of moving to multi-cloud. So what do you think about that? And what talk, talk about what is multi-cloud, for folks who don't get it. And more importantly, um, why is that so important, especially in this new era of computing? Yeah, right. Great point. And, you know, cloud has been this way we've been watching for a long time. Really public clouds now have been about a decade or so, but those of us in the industry have, you know, a little bit less hair or gray hair, uh, have watched this trend for decades. Uh, my background, uh, as Vala said, and, and his background too, is networking. You know, I think back to the 90s uh, with the XSPs, you, you talk about the hosting providers. Uh, you know, we know that it's not in technology that one thing will take it all. Sure, Amazon is growing leaps and bounds. Microsoft, Google, Alibaba, all really important. But when you talk to customers and what are they doing, look, it, it is a multi-cloud world. First of all, what is multi-cloud? There, there's this discussion between hybrid and multi-cloud. Let, let's try to make it as simple as possible. Hybrid really means I've got some of my stuff and I've got some stuff that somebody else owned in a public cloud. Multi-cloud, really, if you look at it, what do I have today? Customers have a lot of SaaS. Uh, Vala, you guys at Salesforce have a lot of customers and so do the Workday ServiceNows and all the other SaaS providers of the world. Public cloud, it's not that I just have one. I, yes, AWS is the you know, majority leader of infrastructure as a service, but chances are I've got, you know, I've absolutely got Microsoft apps out there, whether that's Office 365 or some of the business productivity. Google has a lot of great things and, and there's lots of other clouds out there and I've got my own data center. So SaaS plus public, plus private equals multi-cloud. Now, the challenge is, this isn't just, oh, this is great, I have all these pieces, I throw them all in my grocery cart, and you know, IT just manages them all and it's nice and easy. There's so many challenges. How do I get my arms around them? How do I protect my data? How do I secure my information? When we look at things from a research standpoint, you know, data is you know, one of the, if not the most important asset they have out now, and if it's getting spread all around in all of these different places, I have challenges there, and so 
the reality is today, what customers have, this isn't the future is multi-cloud, it's the reality of what people have today, and therefore, how do they really deal with it? The worry I have, I spent you know, 15, 20 years in my IT career trying to help people, mostly from the vendor side, but also when I became an analyst, you know, how do we get out of those silos? How do we standardize our environment? How do we make things easier? And when you look at that multi-cloud world, boy, it sure doesn't look easy. It doesn't look cheap. Uh, so, you know, have we traded some of the benefits of where we are now uh, with some of the sins of the past? That's amazing. I just wrote uh, an article where it was based on research of 4,000 marketeers that have budget responsibilities, VPs, CMOs, and the number of data sources in 2017 was on average 10. In just one year, it's 15. So, you know, a massive increase year over year in terms of 15 unique data sources. And they, these data sources predominantly are from cloud applications. So how does a CIO responsible for helping marketing and, and, and her peer, the CMO, What's the role of this new CIO where you've got all these multiple cloud scenarios, you've got data sources throughout different lines of business, including your partner ecosystem and your communities. What's the changing role of CIO in your, in, based on the folks that you advise uh, today versus a few years back? Yeah, Valen, you bring up a really great point. As I mentioned with, with cloud, what does the CIO have to deal with? One of, the, one of the top things that they have is what I need to manage isn't just what I have you know, in my own environment, but I need to manage a lot of what's out there. Um, as a networking person, a lot of the networks I need to manage are out of my control. I don't see the cabling, I don't understand those pieces, all the things that I knew how to do, they're not there anymore. And when, when you talk about managing that stuff, it's, you know, I don't know where it is, I don't know all the security pieces, how do I stitch all of this together? So managing this environment is challenging and you know, look, we, we all know that the only thing that's constant in this industry is change. So the CIO really, you know, the, 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 the thing that we hear from the business and we, the CIO needs to respond to is how do I keep up with all of that change? And that's a really tough thing. You know, I, I talk to some of the smartest people in the world. I talk to, you know, all of these phenomenal companies. Nobody can keep up with everything. So CIOs need to be able to, in many ways, they are managing uh, a lot of different pieces out there. They need to have partners, uh, both vendors and channel people and advisors that can help them understand what they need to change, understand how they need to move. Uh, you know, I, I think back to earlier in my career when it was like, oh, hey, we're going to run this 24 to 36 month project and throw millions of dollars at it and it'll be beautiful and the consultants will help me. Now it's more like, okay, hey, you got a little bit of money and we need to get this done in somewhere between six weeks and six hours. Um, so, you know, that speed is so important. Um, but, you know, you know, Vala, you, when you say, okay, there's this challenge for IT, what is really exciting, most people that I know that are in the IT industry, they're actually really excited because no longer is IT this thing on the side where you say, hey, we're not giving you any more headcount, we're not giving you more anywhere budget, but we're going to keep throwing stuff at you. Now, IT needs to be a key driver for the business. How do you help us innovate? How do you help us stay competitive? How do you help us move forward? And, you know, everything from, you know, we're, we're geeking out in the cloud world about Kubernetes and serverless and all of these, you know, wonderful new things that can help me move faster. If, you know, I always go back, you know, that you, you need to have people that are willing to be retrained, that are going to be curious, that are going to be able to dig in. Because if you think that in 2019, you can be, still be doing not just the things you were doing in 2015, but heck, even the things you were doing in 2018, uh, you are going to be challenged. So look, it, it, it doesn't all change overnight. And, you know, the enterprise is still these things that move, you know, rather slow in general. But we know that today is the slowest that things are ever going to be moving. <laughs> you know, and Stu, what's interesting is like we, we just finished our digital transformation study and it said, you know, 68% of companies actually got ROI out of it. But the most important thing is that the CIOs are driving these projects again, right? Um, and, and so, you know, you probably encounter this all the time, but everyone's trying to figure out how do I get rid of my legacy technical debt and pay for innovation or find ways to go out and innovate. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, we're seeing that shift with CIOs as well. But, but do you feel that the CIOs are back or are they, or do you feel that sometimes they're still being sidelined? 
Look, it, it, it depends, you know, what type of CIO do I have there, right? Right. Am I working closely with the business? Do I have a good relationship with the CMO? Vala, you know, you brought the CMO. I've talked to a number of CMOs whose primary job is to help leverage all of these, those tools. Uh, you know, heck, you know, I, I'm our Salesforce administrator for our company here. I know how valuable that tool is. Um, so if, if I and IT am not the group that says no, but if I'm the group, uh, I'll, I'll quote a friend of mine, Alan Cullen, you know, you need to be able to go from, you know, the no and slow to go. Um, and if therefore, if you are somebody that when the business comes and says, it doesn't say, hey, why don't you fill out all this paperwork and give me the justification? And I'll get to you in six months. Because if that's the answer, I'm just going to go out there and go do it myself um, or, you know, I'll, I will find somebody else to do it. So, you know, I, uh, in general, uh, I'm really excited, Ray, when I talk to CIOs in the government, when I talk to the CIOs in finance that are talking about how they take limited resources and are doing new projects. You talk, brought up digital transformation. Digital transformation is real and we're getting real value out of this. Uh, AI is really starting to grow. Uh, you know, IOT will take quite a long time to be able to roll out, um, but real projects that are having real benefit, not just for the business, but you know, for humanity. I mean, I love when I get to do interviews about people that are helping to, you know, clean up oceans and, you know, transform energy and healthcare and the like. And underneath all of that, really IT is a significant driver. It needs to go from before, you know, things like storage and networking with a boat anchor that kept me from moving forward. And now actually we can be a driver uh, for, for moving the business forward. So I'm excited for it. Uh, I, I, I say that's one of the definitions of a technologist really is, you know, you need to be excited about the future where it's yep. going. Uh, sure, the robots are learning a lot from us as we go, which means that maybe they're trying to replace us. Um, but uh, in the meantime, we're having fun and geeking out. And, uh, you know, maybe the, the scientific, you know, utopian will take over instead of the dystopian. <laughs> I, know, I know Ray is actively working to replace me with Amelia uh, uh, and, <laughs> and a robot co-host. But I'll do my best to stick around for as long as I can. Yeah, I know every company is a technology company. CIO's responsibilities are now boardroom discussions. Last couple of years, we know security, privacy. I mean, literally, CEOs have lost their jobs because they didn't pay enough attention and invested properly in the role of IT, and not just in terms of security, but even competitive advantage through mass personalization at scale when we talk about AI. And although blockchain and AI were widely hyped and dominated the conversation in 2018, you wrote, that when it comes to the cloud infrastructure space, serverless or function as a service, FAAS, is the latest technology that by most is considered to be the future. So let's geek out on this a bit. What is FAST and can you talk to us a little bit about serverless technology? Yeah, sure, Vala, and, and thank you. Right, so where, where your audience is going to look, they, they probably, you know, may or may not know, you talk about public clouds, then you talk about things like, you know, virtual machines and containers on top of that. You know, what is the building block that we built everything on? So we used to build it on actual physical machines. We called them yep. servers. Then we went to virtual machines, which allowed me to be able to put a lot of stuff into it. Um, People have those, you know, digital uh, assistants at home, like Alexa. So Amazon Alexa runs on the underlying technology that says, when I say in the morning, you know, hey, Alexa, what's the weather? It makes a call, and that's a function. And it goes out, and it goes to the cloud, and it asks a bunch of things. And what it does is it spins up the resource, it does what it needs to do, and then it turns off. So... In IT, we always want to be able to, you know, maximize our utilization. And in the public cloud, this, you know, serverless technology that you have in, in the likes of Amazon, you know, Google, Microsoft, it really means I'm only using the resources when I need them and at a really, really small granular level. So if people have heard of things like microservices, we've been talking about moving to rather than these big monolithic applications, we want to break them down into lots of pieces. And now the serverless technology allows me to have each piece of it only run what I need. It really is about scale. And this is a way, uh, I'm an infrastructure guy, and we always talk about you know, how do all these bits and bytes work. But when I'm a developer and I'm building from the bottom down, I don't want to have to think about all that stuff. So there's the term serverless is serverless. as a developer, I want to just be able to write my code and not be able to think about it. Of course, underneath somewhere, there was the old joke 
that, you know, there's no such thing as the cloud. It's just, you know, a computer somewhere else. Really, there's no such thing as serverless. There's actually a long description, like on a t-shirt that I have, that's like, you know, it's just this little tiny thing that you only use when you need it and everything's so good. Yeah, Vala and us geeks, we, we, we laugh at these kind of jokes, but it, it's true. So, you know, when, when I look at the developer community, people, software is eating the world. You know, this is what's going to help build that next generation. It really enables. One of the things that blew my mind, you know, I talked to marketing people that were like, yeah, I mean, I don't know Java. I don't know Ruby. I don't know any of this, but you know, my team needed me to do something and I ramped up on serverless and I didn't need to learn all that other stuff and I'm adding value to the business and I'm getting things done. And it's like, you know, really amazing because it's, it's one of those gaps that I've seen in the marketplace. What are the jobs of the future? It's like, oh wait, we're all going to need to be coders. Well, wait, do I need to be coders or will AI and computers take over that? Well, no, I don't need to all be this. Serverless actually gives it in a paradigm that more people will be able to leverage it. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's we, we will see. So serverless, definitely hot technology. It's actually been around. Amazon launched their service way back in 2014. So we're five years in and most people haven't even heard about it. But when you go to the geek circles and you go to some of the real techies, they get really excited about it. And it's, like everything else, well, does it have the, the, the chance to really disrupt all the way that things are done? Yes, but it's also, there's a bridge from here to there, and we can use some of the containers underneath and some of these things that, you know, you never throw away everything and you never, uh, you know, we, we know that these transitions, especially when we're talking about applications, take time to change over. To change over. These, these things will take many years uh, before uh, they come to fruition. Um, massive shifts, massive changes. Those are great topics. Uh, let's turn to the cube, right? When did this yeah. start? You were part of the beginning. Uh, talk about some interesting guests that have popped up. But uh, yeah, what what came up? How did you guys come up with the concept for this? So, all right. So uh, you, you know, Ray, you know John, John Furrier. So John's team yep. at Silicon Able had come up with the, this idea for doing a mobile studio. We were actually partnering. I was hired as an analyst by Dave Vellante to do Wikibon. So WikiBon and SiliconANGLE, we started working together and it was, let's do these videos and let's get smart people we know. Um, we want, you know, peers to talk with peers. So let's get end users on, let's get smart people. That's why you've been on our program a ton of times, Ray. Um, and we, we want to be able to, we go to all the events. So last year as a team, uh, you know, Bala mentioned I did over 400 interviews as a team. We did over 2,000 interviews at over 100 events. So wow. I don't think we were quite as many as you, Ray, uh, personally, but, um, you know, we did a lot of events uh, and it's amazing. So, I mean, for myself, you know, every year I look back and we're like, oh my God, the people I've interviewed over the time, founders of tech, of, of, of companies, uh, you know, billionaires, uh, you know, thought leaders in the space, um, you know, innovators in the space. So personally for me, like I interviewed Andy Bechtelstein. You know, we've interviewed two of the four founders of Sun Now on our program as a networking guy. You know, I geeked out with him uh, on what was going on. He founded Arista. He founded all these companies that had been acquired. And uh, the, the other one I was super excited about, Walter Isaacson. So an author, oh, I wow. love yeah. reading his stuff. Um, you know, I grabbed him for a thing talking about how he loves pairing the humanities and the technology. Uh, I was jealous. Furrier got to interview uh, uh, John Chambers uh, this year. So, you know, just, you know, one of those you know, on the Mount Rushmore of the internet era, uh, you know, super exciting. And uh, I wasn't there, but Diane Green, we also interviewed at the Google show. So, you know, some big leaders in the space. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned, you know, I really love, you know, the, the users. Uh, I'm doing like a local cloud and virtualization event at uh, Avala at Gillette Stadium in a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, I, I've actually got local. a lot of this local. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's in my backyard here. So, uh, it's, you know, I love doing that way. I get to talk to the users and under the right as you talked about that digital transformation what's going on because every industry is going through just so much change and you learn so much just talking about you know what are they doing what are the challenges what are the opportunities we love doing series on uh, some of the great women in technology we've been huge supporters of the cube uh, for women in tech events and making sure that we highlight a lot of diversity in our programming so uh, yeah, it's uh, we, we'll do more shows than ever here in 2019. We even turn a podcast every week. We take our best independent editorial and put it out as the Cube Insights. So, you know, we're always looking for more guests. We're looking for what shows we should be at. And we're looking at more ways to connect with the community. And, uh, you know, I went I've been on board for almost nine years now when I started. I do a couple interviews here or there on like networking or, you know, if it's a, uh, you know, an area where I knew the guests. Now I'm personally hosting a lot of stuff. I don't know. I, I, this space was not made for video, but uh, I, I love geeking out, 
talking about things that people are passionate about and uh, uh, the, the feedback's been phenomenal. Well, if you're at any major event, any major tech event, you will see the cube and uh, definitely catch Stu there. We're here with Stuart Minnan, Stu at Senior Analyst, and of course, one of the other founders at the Cube uh, and an analyst for Wikibon. You can follow him at his awesome Twitter handle, at Stu, S-T-U. So hey, thank you for being on the show and happy new year. Thanks, Stu. Thanks, Stu. Awesome. Happy, happy 2019 to both of you. Thanks so much for having me. Look forward to seeing you in an airport. Talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see him at a conference first, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but cool. He's, he's one of the smartest guys I know. And as you can tell, I don't even think he's working. He has so much fun and enthusiasm. Uh, you have to have that when you, when you interview 400 people in a year. Uh, so it's our privilege to now speak to our second guest, Rachel Hack, co-founder and principal at the Community Roundtable, a company dedicated to advancing the business of community. Rachel celebrated her 10th year with the Community Roundtable, which collaborates with clients to develop proven practical strategies for better engagement. Rachel co-founded the Community Roundtable to support business leaders developing communities, collaboration and engagement strategies. Rachel has over 25 years of experience, so she started when she was five, working with emerging technologies, including enterprise social networking, e-commerce, and enterprise software applications. So great segue after speaking to Stu. You can follow Rachel on Twitter, another great follow at R-H-A-P-P-E. Welcome, Rachel, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Paula. Sorry that maybe I should have sh shared a shorter bio. No, no, that was a great bio. Great. I always have a tough time shortening the bios of our yeah. guests because you guys do so much. So, so thank you for being on the show. Yeah, no, this is great to catch up. I mean, I, I remember when you first started the CR, uh, this is very, very early, but you were caught the wave where communities actually started to come into prominence. And so the question is, hey, look, we're 10 years into these big communities. Mm -hmm. And in terms of where we are today, what have we learned? What works? Uh, and why is this still as relevant as ever in organizations? Well, it's, in it's so interesting having like looked at the last decade, because I really look at that interface between how technology is affecting social structures and human beings and like, what's that doing to us all? And uh, what I find is interesting is we started in 2009, there was a lot of great theory. And then the main market got really uh, obsessed, distracted, whatever you want to call it, with social media. And I don't think the potential of social media was really addressed because of no. both the architecture and the way people conceived of using it. They basically slapped it on the business processes they already had, and it became just a content generation machine, like spewing out, you know, channels of data, which isn't bad, but the engagement it's interesting. I both love and hate the word engagement because I can't measure engagement unless I assume it's one thing. But mm. engagement is hundreds of things. And so when um, there's some data point out there saying like 70% of employees are disengaged, my mm. question, which is kind of snarky, but is, are the rest of them dead? They're not dead. Maybe they are. I don't know. They are, but they can't do work. <laughs> So they're, they're engaged at some level. They're just, so like be more specific about what engagement means. And I think that's the crux of where we went wrong, which is clicks, yes, are validation engagement, but there's so much more. Um, and so communities have kind of been puttering along alongside this social media and social uh, technology stream. And we've kind of gone in humps and valleys, but uh, there, I feel like we're reaching a tipping point and it's partly what Stu was talking about. Change is the new norm. Like, and it's not getting slower, it's getting faster in part because the CIOs aren't constrained by what's on-prem anymore. And so they can adapt their reality and business users can pick up technology. And so the infrastructure around us is changing at, breakneck speeds if you want it to, uh, people change much more slowly. Mm -hmm. And uh, if the social structure 
and that doesn't match the technical structure, the bigger the gap between the two, the more tension arises. And so these issues of community management and leading networks and managing networks productively is getting C-level and board of director level attention now because they're like, whoa, whoa, the biggest barrier. And actually I was at a CIO conference speaking last year um, and there was a whole panel of CEOs sitting there before my session. All of them were saying, we need to address culture change. And I was sitting there and I was like, I'm not at a, am I at a CIO conference? Like, am I at the right conference? Uh, and I was like, these are not the people who, who necessarily or historically have driven culture change, nor is it their explicit responsibility, but they're all sitting there saying, we cannot take advantage of the technology we have available to us today because our cultures not ready. can't change fast enough. And so, you know, that, that's where I play. And I think part of the problem is I'm old enough now, as are all of you. I think we've kind of like, we're not digital natives. We're digital, what's that word? We're <laughs> transplants or whatever. Uh, but we, we were trained in school to compete with technology, to do better than technology. Yep. And what needs to happen is people need to be trained to complement technology. All the things that computers can't do, the creativity, the innovation, the co authentic connections, all of that stuff is, is our unique value add. And humans will always sit at either end of the technology. And we're becoming the weakest link in the organizational system and more and more expensive as technology commoditizes. Right. Right. And so, okay, if, if we don't optimize humans for their unique potential, yeah. Yeah. who cares what technology we have? Because the, the people will stop it. I, I, you know, I, I believe, you know, my one realization with my company, and I felt that when I was a customer and now that I'm, you know, a, a part of the company, that, that the spark can come from you, the company, the organization, but the, but the, but the heat, the flames, the energy has to come from the community if you want to scale. Yeah. Um, I, 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 an example is when we started our online uh, training, we call it Trailhead. In two years, we've issued 11 million badges, and that adoption of online competency-based education was completely fueled by our MVPs and customers and partners. So we created a platform, and then it was the community that created the change that we were hoping yeah. for. So what are some of the elements of a healthy community where you can plant the seed of an idea and then watch it flourish into a forest and you're just sitting back and the community is doing all the heavy lifting. Like how, what are some of the attributes you look for to create that magic? Yeah, I mean, to me, it comes down to something fairly simple, but people typically forget one or the other, and it has to be both, which is you need to support people and you need to challenge them. Yep. If it's just support, that's nice, yeah. but I'm gonna leave if, I'm, if I wanna do something in the world because yeah, the support's nice. I need it when I'm really stressed, but it doesn't get me anywhere. Right. If you have challenge and not support, well, that's kind of a bummer, right? Like, consulting. their whole model is challenge with no support. Um, so you need both. And, and it, it is often better delivered through peers than mm -hmm. through uh, formal leaders because it always comes across a little disingenuous when your boss is saying, go get them, I know you can. And you're like, that means I have to stay here till midnight? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm <gonna> keep them. <laughs> I don't really need to. So, you know, like removing the organizational bottleneck, i.e. the hierarchy, mm. gets so much further, faster. But it changes everything we know about leadership. Hmm. Um, and sorry, does that imply a flatter org is a healthier framework? Um, 
I, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of formal managers and leaders. I think we always need that. It's getting them out of the micromanagement. It's changing them to coaches rather than like, you'll do this. It's not, it's letting people manage their own work and a, a volunteer for projects that interest them and like helping guide them through that. Because if you don't have managers, you get, you know, somebody 21 out of college, they don't know what they don't know. And so if you put them in the melee, like <laughs> some of them will rise to the top, but a whole bunch of them will just wander around going, what do I do now? It's brutal. Uh, <laughs> well, so, this leads us to the next point, right? Which, which is really, right? Do these communities, they have to still be managed or you can be laissez-faire about them? Can you be like, I mean, what's that right balance? Because just like people don't want to be told what to do, they also do need some direction to be influenced or guided around in those communities. So you need to create trust, right? So you need to be a coach, not a dictator, right? And I finally figured out what belongs on our t-shirts because I didn't want another technology t-shirt. We have this phrase, control is for amateurs. Uh -huh. So I thought that was kind of witty. And then, you know, I was wearing it, somebody and somebody was like, well, what's for professionals? <laughs> and I was like, that is a good question. And letting go, letting go. Well, no, uh, it turns out just an S, controls, right? Like controls, controls suggest you have boundary conditions, you make certain behaviors easier, but you never tell anybody what to do. You say, here's where we're playing. Here's our shared purpose. Here's the value we're going to create together. Bring me what you've got. Let's do this. Um, and so it's exciting somebody and then coaching them when they kind of bump into those boundary conditions. Makes sense. A, a river without boundaries is a puddle. Yeah, absolutely. So boundaries, <laughs> boundaries make sense. Uh, I love that. Uh, I, There's I another t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I listened to uh, Dr. Kaifu Lee, who just wrote the book, AI Superpowers. And, uh, and he said that, you know, there is processes today where AI predictions and rec recommendations can be based on as much as 3,000 discrete data points. Mm. Talk about the difficulty in measuring engagement, and it's not just a click or a tap or a like or a heart or whatever. There's so many dimensions to it. I think about, well, does machine learning and neural networks and the promise of AI means that 10 years from now, community managers have augmented intelligence where, you know, today, for example, Workday will tell you through their algorithms which employees are engaged and disengaged based on very discrete scores. Uh, what is the future of community management, community engagement optimization, or creating a more healthy environment where AI is going to play a significant role? So um, the place where I see the construct happening, but not quite the reporting and controls we need, is in marketing automation. Um, where So I have a whole uh, soapbox around analytics and business analytics. and like how we, we, sub, we optimize subsystems to the detriment of the whole system, and we measure outputs, which are lagging indicators, not leading indicators. And they can be fudged, right? And so you're like, we're running our whole business, like optimizing marketing against customer support. And then no wonder we have to talk about the customer experience, because marketing's trying to do something completely different with the customers than customer support is. We found in our research, customer support communities actually have more impact on marketing than marketing communities. I yes. totally agree with that. Which is not a surprise coming from us, but um, so when I look at analytics, I wanna see behaviors. What's the behavior pathway? Because there are some engagement behaviors that I hypothesize are predictive of transactions. No matter what the transaction is at the end, you can see people starting to take ownership of the destination through their behavior. So if you apply AI to that and allow community managers to really be the strategists behind, okay, how do I segment different populations that are choosing their own adventure in this particular way 
and setting them, making sure they're connecting with the right people, getting the right information, involved in the right conversations, that can be a huge help to community management. Because right now, uh, the community teams are still tiny compared to what they're being asked to do. And uh, there's just a lot of details and administrative and content management and analytics work that goes into it that like, you just can't do it all in a day. So I, I see technology coming in and really helping extend uh, the value of really good community management quite uh, effectively. What you said is very deep and I hope people replay and listen to it because as someone who ran services worldwide for 10 years and then marketing for three years accidentally. Uh, <laughs> I, totally, uh, I, I was an accidental marketeer. <laughs> I, I, I totally appreciate the benefits and the complexity of what you just said. So anyway, anyway, uh, brilliant. Well, and so a lot of people are using community as essentially the clearinghouse or the ombuds role for the organization so that things can get channeled through there and distributed out to the right people. And it really does streamline. It allows the customer or the employee, if you're doing it internally, to have one place to go so that, that the fragmentate, the functional fragmentation of the organization doesn't have to be experienced. Yeah, I mean, long time ago, we talked about how customers don't care what department you're in. Right? They, they don't. Really don't. No, they don't. Right? And, and so how, how, do, how do we make that seamless uh, and, and get people in, in the right roles and, and more importantly, getting their issues resolved? I mean, that's really all they care about. Yep. But it's, it's more than just issue resolution. I mean, people proactively use these communities also to do innovation, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that you've seen that actually happen. Um, how, do you, how do you get that in place? How do you build that healthy culture for not only just the renewal of the community, especially when community gets old in the topics, and but also turn it around and, and let people see that as kind of a source of strength, being able to bring in all those demand signals, all those yeah. ideas, all those things. Um, you know, where have you seen success in that? So I, I find this is one of the biggest struggles in the market right now, is executives want communities for that, uh, but they don't like the answer of what is required to get there, which is you really get a trusted environment, you have to build trust. And trust is not a switch. You have to engage people in incremental ways and nudge them along before they're willing to, to share that way. Sure. <laughs> I, was at a, uh, I was at a software conference where the CEO, who's a former Bain consultant, I won't name who, uh, I was like, we're going to turn up the trust by 30%. And I just like, how do you do that, dude? <laughs> I literally just wanted to slap him. I mean, if he has the switch and he'll get he didn't it, have to switch. He didn't have the that would be great, but. That's awesome. AI for that type of procedure <laughs> metric. Um, your state of uh, community management research um, highlighted three takeaways. Uh, communities are change agents. Communities generate transformational value. And lastly, and I think it's important, community teams are underfunded. So what advice do you have to CMOs or any line of business who, un, who, who, who absolutely philosophically agreed in terms of the importance of communities, um, but their job is to not go convince the CFO or the CEO to fund <laughs> the uh, oriented uh, investments. What's the best advice we can give to those folks? Um, so I think part of the challenge has been that community professionals are moving up into leadership roles, but they come from engage, uh, engagement or content roles. They don't have business skills necessarily. Um, and so a lot of the work we've been doing with our clients is building community business cases that have ROI uh, trends and projections. Predictions. And what happens is those community teams who are underfunded, so they don't have business skills, can't translate the value they're generating into hard financial figures. And that's what executives need to make choices. That's how they budget. That's how they decide to, to invest in something. And so really uh, deepening skills in how to tell that narrative in a succinct but powerful and meaningful way is really critical. I, again, you talk to a lot of community people who are amazing and brilliant, and the power of communities 
is they generate just a wealth of value and across functions, across tactical, operational, strategic goals. But the challenge of communities is they generate and break down silos. And so trying to clarify that into like seeing the whole elephant is what I call it. Like instead of the tail and the trunk and the whatever, you roll that picture up for the executive in a really easy to understand way. Until that happens, we're going to stay in this kind of uh, standoff. The, state, yeah. the standoff of community yeah. management all, all over. That's stage of one. <laughs> so. well, we all have to, you know, community leader, the art of storytelling and understanding the language yeah. of business is finance. So yeah. somehow you have to, it's so important. Again, I remember presenting to boards. You need to go with some numbers and you need to also inspire them and educate them. And, and In five minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe this is the 2019 resolution. Get your community re rejuvenated or mm -hmm. get it re kickstart. So we're here with Rachel Happ, co-founder and principal at the Community Roundtable. They've been around for over a decade. You can follow her at R-H-A-P-P-E, figuring out what's hot for communities, what's next, and of course, turning them into innovation engines. So, all right. Thank you very much. Thanks Thank for being on the great. show. Thank you, Bella. It was nice Thank to you. chat. Absolutely. Bye. You were terrific. Thank you so much. This is a topic we could talk for hours. I mean, is there's so many dimensions to having a healthy community. And again, I, I'm, I feel that, uh, you know, Salesforce is an, a great example of a community building company. Um, I guess I'm biased, but, but I, you know, I, I go to all these user sponsored events where the customers have the events put together and thousands attend. So it's, it's, I'm kind of in awe of the power of a well-formed well community. Okay, our final segment, and this is an amazing segment. We have uh, with us Heather Willems, co-founder of Visual Strategist at The First Work. Heather has established herself as one of the world's leading visual strategists, graphic facilitating for 15 years around the globe. Her deep knowledge and passion for visualizing big ideas led her to work with influential thought leaders and companies like Disney, AOL, FedEx, Google, Lego, NASA, you know, brands that I think you've heard of. <laughs> Small brands, you know. And is the co-author of Draw Your Big Idea. Uh, and the book has been featured on Today's Show, Entrepreneur Magazine, Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Mashable, and, and many other, again, incredibly recognized media outlets. She also speaks and keynotes on the topic of the power of visual problem solving. Uh, another incredible follow on Twitter, at Heather, H-E-A-T-H-E-R, underscore, W-I-L-L-E-M-S. Welcome, Heather, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you for having me. I wish we could uh, visually draw our, our 20 minute segment. Yeah, I'm gonna be drawing at the same time we're talking. I, I got it all figured out. Awesome. <laughs> no, I mean, we're talking about some of the most awesome works of multitasking. We'll put this link out here, but you can see it like every year we've had uh, Constellation Connected Enterprise. We've, we've been lucky to have um, Heather with us. And, and what, it, what it is, is it's just this graphical recording, visual strategy. What, what's interesting is you're, you're basically summarizing ideas on the fly every time. Like, we don't know how you do that. Like, you know, there's a big discussion, panels going on. You don't know what the topics are. Boom, right? Nice, clean concise points all drawn interconnected i mean it, it's pretty amazing to watch and so so we've been lucky to have you there but uh yeah let's let's talk about you know let's talk about um this industry in general right and and some of the uh, top skill sets for 2022 uh that was in, with the world economic forums top skill set list i think there's a lot of tie-ins back there so let's start there you said uh, you were inspired by this weft top skill list from 2022 uh, and was delighted to see a few things. What were those traits? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I was delighted to see there was four or five different things that directly tie to the creativity that I bring to businesses or that the folks in, the, in, in my industry bring to the businesses. So, um, you know, when I'm listening to conversations, uh, drawing out these big ideas, whether it's in a strategy or at your conference, um, you know, it's really people often come up, they're like, uh, you know, the active listening is one thing that's that's really um, involved in the skill set. The creativity, critical thinking that goes into the group think that's happening, um, you know, in these strategy sessions. And then the complex problem solving that's happening, um, you know, as these groups come together to creatively collaborate and really 
dive into some of the toughest problems that we have to solve. So, you know, I, I really believe that um, using the visual strategy and using graphic facilitation as a tool to draw up what's being said, it helps to focus the conversation. It helps to get, we were talking about engagement earlier. Um, you know, there's nobody sleeping in the sessions that I've ever been. Hopefully there's no dead people in the sessions either. <laughs> um, but it really like heightens the engagement when you actually notice that wow, that person's listening to me. Like the words that I'm saying actually have value and weight are, and are contributing to this conversation. Um, okay. And, you know, are, are contributing to the problem solving that's happening in those sessions as well. That's amazing. In your book, Draw Your Big Idea, you wrote studies show that images help people think so I think, you know, it, I, I, I still believe it's a superpower in today's, you know, hyper busy world for us to just find the space and time right. to think. <laughs> you also said visual note taking such as doodling increases memory retention rates by 30%, opens creative pathways, strengthens focus, and inspires self-expression. Mm -hmm. When did you realize, one, that you had the talent to listen to a bunch of people and capture the essence of this multi-dialogue, complete chaos, because Ray's events are known for having the longest or largest panels. You literally have six people talking over each other. Meanwhile, you're in the corner doing doodling, and then when you're done, everyone's like, oh my God, she completely captured the gold nuggets of this mess that Ray calls a panel. <laughs> so, how, how did you figure out you, like how do you know you could do that like how did you figure out you have this superpower um well Ray, I, I mean that your panels are a mess but they're, you know, they're some are big beautiful. some are six people people are talking there's a lot going on there's a lot going on there's uh, always passion on the stage uh, <laughs> during those, those those panels for sure um well, I think you kind of nailed it. Like one of the, one of the things that's, it's not really a superpower. It's going back to some of those skills that are on the, uh, on the list. You know, it's active listening. It's just actively listening. And you, you know, there's a lot of CMOs in the audience. So we know like you're looking for that killer tagline that's going to capture people's attention and mm. really like, and, you know, talking about marketing, getting those images or the visual story that's going to cement those ideas together, make them memorable and lasting. Um, so that's kind of the, the superpower is. Uh, but you're, but you're, you're filtering 99% of what's said. So there's this incredible filtering the noise and pulling out the signal. So the signal to noise ratio when you're done is amazing. Uh, so, like, so, okay, so advice on filtering noise. When, when you say active listening, if I'm in a room with 20 people at a meeting, what do I need, to, what muscles do I need to develop where I can filter the nonsense and capture the essence of the next action I need to take or the purpose of the meeting? Because most of the things I go to, they don't necessarily have incredibly well-written agenda and, and next best steps. So you have to kind of, through osmosis, figure that out on your own. Unless you have an amazing meeting facilitator or someone like you who captures the, the night. <laughs> um, well, I think one, one thing, one tip is to focus, you know, is, is to, to just be focused on what's being said. We, you know, we were talking earlier, we have all of these different devices constantly beeping and pinging and, you know, letting us know, trying to take away our attention. So it's really, uh, honing in and focusing. And one way to do that, you know, going back to the study you just mentioned about increasing the memory retention by 30%, um, is doodling. You know, when you're using your kinetic energy, it can be used in texting somebody that's taking you outside of the room, or it can be used to be doodling something, drawing on a napkin or a notebook um, that you have laid out on the tables to, um, you know, bring the attention back into the room. Okay. You know, it's almost a, a simple meditation exercise as to bringing yourself back to your breath. You know, bring yourself back to the room with the doodling. That's, that's one tip. Okay. And, and you don't have to be like artistically inclined. Just no way. Okay. All right. 
Okay, good. <laughs> it looks so hard. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I've been watching this since 1997. Uh, I mean, I was at a, I think I was at an event or something you were doing actually in, uh, in Cleveland, Ohio uh, for, uh, for Ernst & Young. So I'm like, oh, I've been watching like, wow, I'm like, how do you draw this on the fly? It, it really does look hard. So what are yeah. some steps for people that are trying to do this or just get started? So. Um, well, one thing to remember, uh, <laughs> uh, I can't believe that we've been doing this for, you know, known each other for that long. Um, <laughs> One one thing to remember is it's not about making something that's beautiful and polished and you know glorious to share for everybody. It's it's not about being beautiful. It's about having the ideas and just getting capturing um, those you know just drawing out what's being said. It doesn't have to be pretty. It just needs to communicate an idea. Uh, and another thing is is like breaking it down. It's base you know basic drawing you know drawing one hundred and one is to look at an object and break it down into its simplest elements. So one exercise I'll do, um, you know, even my daughter, she's two years old right now, and I can draw a circle with a couple lines that are coming out from the middle of the circle and she's like, cat! So <laughs> it's really about, you know, our brains, like we've got an advantage, right? Cause like our brains from infancy are hardwired to see images. Right. We are problem solvers. Um, you know, we want to like make sense of the world. We want to fill in the puzzle pieces. Right. So it's really, you know, to our benefit to right. use the visuals to help to, you know, make a link between two really complex ideas. Sure, sure. I read another research that said, yeah, the human mind, uh, we process images 60 times faster than text words. So, mm -hmm. you know, the old saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, absolutely. Um, but, you know, working with, I mean, let's look at the spectrum of, in terms of complexity, Pepsi, Google, NASA. Well, what are some <laughs> of the common, uh, you know, common uh, denominators in terms of, uh, you know, sparking creativity and focus and maybe even identifying blue ocean strategies through visualization? That, that you employ regardless of the complexity of the product uh, that, that, that's there, whether it's you know, consumer beverages to putting a man on Mars. <laughs> uh, what yeah. are some of the needs that they all have that are in common? Uh, that's an easy question. <laughs> um, I mean, well, we were just talking about community and we were talking about, uh, you know, that makes me think of like the community that exists within the company culture. Right, so that's one, one challenge that all organizations have to overcome is how do we get teams aligned uh, to go along and move, for, move forward with the strategy you know, for, for the upcoming year? Like now is a perfect time to be talking about this, right? So this is the beginning of the year. We've all got our, um, our strategies in plan and we're praying to God or, you know, whatever, or technology or whatever, that um, everybody's going to come along, you know, on this crazy road trip with us um, to success in, in the upcoming years. Um, but it's really about, you know, when you get the right people in the room um, and you're helping them to align around one common problem that needs to be solved, and digging deep into what that problem truly is, not the surface problem, like what the problem really is. And then collecting all of their ideas in a creative collaborative way to get them, um, to make them feel like their voice is being heard, to create that trust that we're also desperately wanting. What's this gonna be raised 30%? Well, maybe by drawing it out as a way to get it there. Yeah. Um, so getting everybody's ideas out on the page and then mapping out what needs to be done, like map out step-by-step, step. what are those big milestones that need to happen? What's the action that's gonna go beneath it? And then the last thing in ways that I've seen this help, help organizations, you know, whether they're selling energy or they're selling Legos, yeah. is keeping that visual strategy present. 
vis visible up in the space. So whether it's, you know, up in the global headquarters printed out as an eight foot board, or it's something that you have on your phone and you're looking at it every day. It's a way to keep the teams accountable uh, and remember what they signed up for. It's a way to help them on their on those weekly check-ins to help identify what those priorities are that are going to get us to that big goal. And then it also helps us with the daily decisions. What's that number one thing? If I get nothing done today, totally disengage like the dead guy sitting next to me. <laughs> you know, what's the one thing that I can do to um, move the company, the organization forward to, towards That's the goal? Amazing. I got to tell you regarding visuals, I visited the university and I had their CIO uh, show me a sticker. It was UMass University. Yeah. And cool. they, they had customized a sticker with UMass using Cody, which is a, a, a mascot for my company. And I walked away going, when you talk about having customer advocates, anytime a customer builds a sticker based on our company, that to me is like the ultimate example of a customer who loves you. So I put this on my phone just to remind myself that I want every customer of ours to love us as much as this CIO did at UMass Lowell. So it's just a constant yeah. reminder. It's, just, it's amazing what you said about, you know, whether you put a wristband to remind you of something or a sticker on your phone, uh, which, yeah. you know, kind of looks strange when I go to all these board meetings and CXO meetings and they see a sticker on my phone. But that's exactly why I did it. Anyway, anyway, it's so, it's exactly. a we got a lot of fun comments on Twitter. Uh, David Cho, every year at the Constellation event, I'm always impressed by Heather Williams and her drawing mm -hmm. skill. I will call it corporate graffiti. Shaka does not stand a chance versus her, which is very interesting. Uh, we've got Jeff Corb, couldn't agree more. She explained how she does it, and yet I still can't figure out how she and her colleagues do it. I think it's still maybe magic. Uh, and Andrew Nevis, uh, Heather always gets my ideas across when I'm at a conference with her. Highly recommend for board meetings to use graphical facilitation. Lots of fans there, Heather. It's amazing. Yeah, you know, it was Steve Jobs who said the most powerful person in business is a storyteller. And I think about the human mind and visualization. I think about Simon Sinek. He used three circles to produce one of the most popular TED Talks of all time with yeah. the why and how. And, and, and uh, or, or, or how, why, and what, and why. Why, I think, was in the middle. <laughs> so, so but, but is that, do you feel that part of becoming a successful storyteller where you can educate, inspire, and ignite action is to build that muscle of incorporating visuals in the narratives that you share. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you should. That's good. It's hard. I to do obscenities, but I don't think it's appropriate for the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's... It, I love that you brought up um, Simon Sinek and the why. Yeah. It's like, it's, where do we go without purpose? You know, we need to have that purpose that's uh, getting us out of bed and getting us through the day and, um, you know, taking us, taking us to those ultimate goals. And I mean, really, like we want to have that, we have that idea of the why and the purpose so we can have the lives that we really want to be leading. That's why we go to work in the first place, right? Um, but bringing it back to visuals, like I love your example of the, um, the sticker on your phone, right? Because that, to me, like that's a visual representation of your purpose. Like you said it, like you had your own mission there that's tied to this visual and no one else needs to know it. Right. It's the first time I've shared it. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. People wonder why I have a goofy sticker on my phone. And I, hopefully they ask me why, because I actually have a story. Uh, but, but, well, yeah. now everybody will. Now everybody will. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, it's those visuals. It's having, having that visual, like, is so important to remind us of, of why, of the why. True. True. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, hey, this has been wonderful. We've been talking to Heather uh, about what's going on. Heather Williams, she is one of the top visual strategists in the world. We're lucky to have her at our events every year. And uh, more importantly, you can catch her uh, at Heather underscore Williams. And of course, in Brooklyn, if you do see her floating around. So. Yeah, come. <laughs> Thank you so much, Heather. You crushed it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Awesome. <laughs> okay, awesome. So
that was just, we went from like talking about function as a service to importance of visual design in terms of storytelling. I mean, that's the spectrum you can experience on Disrupt TV on Friday. My mind is smoke coming out of my ears. Thank God you can't see it. Um, uh, but so next week, we're going to continue this, uh, you know, amazing uh, guest to kick off 2019. We have Annie McKee, PhD, University of Pennsylvania. She's an author. We're going to talk about innovation and leadership. We have Crawford Delprent, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Chief Research Officer at IDC. And we'll certainly talk about 2019 projections, two, three, five years across a number of emerging technologies and multiple industries. And we have our favorite media personality, editor-in-chief of ZDNet, Larry Dignan, who's always raw, radically transparent, and gives us a great pulse of what industries are uh, tackling and, and, and working on in terms of technology and disruption. Ray, closing remarks on our first show of 2019, episode 132. No holds barred, Larry. It's awesome. Man. But yeah. hey, I want to know what your big New Year's resolution is for 2019, Vala. Uh, you know, to become a better storyteller. Because when I see folks like Heather, frankly, when I see folks like you, every time I see you give a keynote, you can hear a pin drop no matter the size of the audience. So being able to connect with your audience, and I don't think it's as much about how you speak, it's more about how you connect. So I'm still going to have the ums and oohs in my, in my, in my, uh, when I'm on stage. But I do want to really understand the magic of connecting authentically in a trustworthy way with an audience. And I think part of this show allows us to figure out the different blind spots that we have in terms of how we communicate. Certainly having Stu, who's interviewed 400 people, you saw the enthusiasm and the specificity oh, yeah. in oh, which yeah. he, he answered our questions. So... He's masterful at it. You're masterful at it. So, you know, just be a better storyteller, I guess. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, welcome, everyone. Here's to your New Year's resolutions. And, of course, please catch us 11 a.m., 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific. You can always catch us on Disrupt TV show every Friday. Uh, and then, of course, our anniversary show is coming up in a few weeks. So a little surprise. You're going to be at there. Davos, Ray, right? We're gonna I will be at NRF. I will be at Davos. I might show up at the JP Morgan Healthcare Summit next week in CES. We'll see what happens. Uh, still, still debating all that. But uh, yeah, definitely NRF. So we'll be at NRF together. I'll see you there. You got it. See you next week. Thanks everyone for watching. We'll talk to you Friday. Thanks everyone. Talk to you Friday. Bye. Bye.